Chapter Eleven of the Apostle of Alaska: The Story of William Duncan of Metlakatla by John W. Arctander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Schempf. The Totems and Clubs. We have already seen that the twenty-three hundred Simpsons living at Fort Simpson were divided into nine different tribes, living each in their own separate village, close by each other. But the bond of the Tsimshean nation was not the only one uniting the different tribes. In every tribe were found members of the same four different clans or crests, the ties and relations of these clans being much more intimate and binding than the tribe relation. The name given to this relation is totem. We find it not only permeating the Tsimshean nation, but also all the other Indian communities on the northwest coast with practically the identical crests in each. Yea, we are told that the same clan division is found among the aborigines in the southern sea, as well as among some of the natives of the South American continent. The forest of totem poles which greets the eye of the traveler all along the coast of southeastern Alaska, and which, by their grotesque carving and painting, furnish so great an attraction to him, is an outcropping and an evidence of the existence of this clan or crest system all around him at first the white people were inclined to look at the totem poles as idols and believed them to be objects of worship on the part of the indians but herein they were clearly mistaken the designs on them were simply symbolical of the crests adopted in far back ages to distinguish the four social clans into which each tribe was divided and the totem pole in reality is a substitute for the coat of arms of the european nobleman the use of the totem pole never became common among the tsimsheans while the haidas the expert carvers of the coast were especially noted for their complex sets of totem poles and were closely followed by the clingets the illustration on a nearby page gives an idea of the forest of totem poles in a haida village at fort simpson the headquarters of the tsimshean nation there were never at any time more than eight or ten totem poles all told the tsimsheans instead sometime painted the animals of their totems on the front wall of their houses and every household utensil and treasure chest as well as every box in which the winter food was stored bore upon it evidences of the family's totem carved or painted as the case might be as it is important on a subject like this to have an authoritative explanation and as no man on the northwest coast could be a more absolute authority on everything in connection with the indians than mr duncan i will reproduce what he has written on the totem subject in the metlakatlan number four for the month of november eighteen eighty nine the names of the four clans in the tsimshean language are kishputwada kanada lachabu and Lakshkik, the Kishpuwara, by far the most numerous hereabouts, are represented symbolically by the grizzly bear on land, the finback whale in the sea, the owl in the air, and the rainbow in the heavens. The Kanada symbols are the frog, the raven, the starfish, and the bullhead. The Lachabu take the wolf and heron for totems. The Lakshkik, the beaver, the eagle, the halibut, and the dogfish. The creatures I have just named are, however, only regarded as the visible representatives of the powerful and mystical beings or genii of Indian mythology. 
and as all of one group are said to be of the same kindred so all the members of the same clan whose heraldic symbols are the same are counted as blood relations strange to say this relationship holds good should the persons belong to different or even hostile tribes speak a totally different language or be located thousands of miles apart on being asked to explain how this notion of relationship originated or why it is perpetuated in the face of so many obliterating circumstances the indians point back to a remote age when their ancestors lived in a beautiful land and where in some mysterious manner the creatures whose symbols they retain revealed themselves to the heads of the families of that day they then relate the traditional story of an overwhelming flood which came and submerged the good land and spread death and destruction all around those of the ancients who escaped in canoes were drifted about and scattered in every direction on the face of the waters and where they found themselves after the flood had subsided there they located and formed new tribal associations thus it was that persons related by blood became widely scattered from each other nevertheless they retained and clung to the symbols which had distinguished them and their respective families before the flood and all succeeding generations have in this particular sacredly followed suit hence it is that the crests have continued to mark the offspring of the original founders of each family as it may be interesting to know to what practical uses the natives apply their crests i will enumerate those which have come under my own notice one as i have previously mentioned crests subdivide tribes into social clans and a union of crest is a closer bond than a tribal union two it is the ambition of all leading members of each clan in the several tribes to represent by carving or painting their heraldic symbols on all their belongings not omitting even their household utensils as spoons and dishes and on the death of the head of the family a totem pole is often erected in front of his house by his successor on which is carved and painted more or less elaborately the symbolic creatures of his clan as they appear in some mythological tale or legend three the crests define the bonds of consanguinity and persons having the same crests are forbidden to intermarry that is a frog may not marry a frog nor a whale marry a whale but a frog may marry a wolf and a whale may marry an eagle among some of the alaskan tribes i am told the marriage restrictions are still further narrowed and persons of different crests may not intermarry if the creatures of their respective clans have the same instincts thus the kanata may not marry a lakshkeek because the raven of the one crest and the eagle of the other seek and devour the same kind of food again the kishputwada may not marry a lachabo because the grizzly bear and wolf representing those crests are both carnivorous four all the children take the mother's crest and are incorporated as members of the mother's family nor do they designate or regard their father's family as their relations a man's heir and successor therefore is not his own son but his sister's son and in the case of a woman being married into a distant tribe away from her relations the offspring of such union when grown up will leave their parents and go to their mother's tribe and take their respective places in their mother's family this law accounts for the great interest which natives take in their nephews and nieces which seems to be quite equal to the interest they take in their own children five 
the clan relationship also regulates all feasting a native never invites the members of his own crest to a feast they being regarded as his blood relations are always welcome as his guests but at feasts which are given only for display so far from being partakers of the bounty all the clansmen within a reasonable distance are expected to contribute of their means and their services gratuitously to make the feast a success on the fame of the feast hangs the honor of the clan six this social brotherhood has a great deal to do with promoting hospitality among the indians a matter of immense importance in a country without hotels or restaurants a stranger with or without his family in visiting an indian village need never be at a loss for shelter all he has to do is to make for the house belonging to one of his crest there he is sure of a welcome and of the best the host can afford there he is accounted a brother and treated and trusted as such seven the subdivision of the tribes into their social clans accounts in a measure for the number of petty chiefs existing in each tribe as each clan can boast of its head men the more property a clan can accumulate and give away to rival clans the greater number of head men it may have eight another prominent use made by the natives of the heraldic symbols is that they take names from them for their children for instance weenayok big fin whale litum Loktau, sitting on the ice eagle ikshkoam alya the first speaker in the morning raven ath kaukaut the howler traveling wolf nine and last but not least the kinship claimed and maintained in each tribe by the method of cress has much to do with preventing blood feuds and also in restoring peace when quarrels and fighting have arisen tribes or sections thereof may and do fight but members of the same social clan may not fight hence in contests between two tribes there always remain in each some non-combatants who will watch the opportunity to interpose their good offices in the interests of peace and order in case too of a marauding party being out to secure slaves should they find one or more of their victims to be of their own crest such a person would be set free and be incorporated as a member of their family while the captives of other crests would be held or sold as slaves in writing of these matters it must be understood that i have kept in view the natives in their primitive state the metlakatlans who are civilized while retaining their crest distinctions and upholding the good and salutary regulations connected therewith have dropped all the baneful and heathenish rivalry with which the clannish system was intimately associated besides this intertribal clan division there was also what we may for want of a better word be denominated as a club or lodge division into secret social fraternities about one-half of the population at fort simpson belonged to one or the other of three such organizations those who did not were called amget the names of the three clubs were weadaha haliad or the cannibals nuklam or the dog-eaters mikla or those who did not eat at all but only practiced dancing and singing only members of the kithando and the kithratla tribes were eligible for membership in the cannibal club but to the other two membership was open to any member of any tribe 
the initiation of new members into these orders or clubs was carried on during the winter months with the most disgusting ceremonies and mostly in the open but if any one came upon the members of the club while engaged in their secret work in the forest he was compelled to become a member whether he wanted to or not the initiation was generally under the direction of some old experienced medicine man but those who were made to ride the goat were young men and sometimes boys who before the public ceremonies had to pass several days and nights alone in the forest where they were supposed to receive supernatural gifts enabling them to go through the ordeal awaiting them the proceedings in the different clubs partook of the same general character i will let mr duncan speak early in the morning the pupils would be out on the beach or on the rocks in a state of nudity each had a place in front of his own tribe nor did intense cold interfere in the slightest degree after the poor creature had crept about jerking his head and screaming for some time a party of men would rush out and after surrounding him commence singing the dog-eating party occasionally carried a dead dog to their pupil who forthwith commenced to tear it in the most dog-like manner the party of attendants kept up a low growling noise or a whoop which they seconded by a screeching noise made on an instrument which they believed to be the abode of a spirit in a little time the naked youth would start up again and proceed a few more yards in a crouching posture with his arms pushed out behind him and tossing his flowing black hair all the while he is earnestly watched by the group about him and when he pleases to sit down they again surround him and commence singing this kind of thing goes on with several different additions for some time before the prodigy finally retires he takes a turn into every house belonging to his tribe and is followed by his train when this is done in some cases he has a ramble on the tops of the same houses during which he is anxiously watched by his attendants as if they expected his flight by and by he condescends to come down and they then follow him to his den which is marked by a rope made of red bark hung over the doorway so as to prevent any person from ignorantly violating its precincts none are allowed to enter the house but those connected with the art all i know therefore of their further proceedings is that they keep up a furious hammering singing and screeching for hours during the day of all these parties none are so much dreaded as the cannibals one morning i saw from the gallery hundreds of tsimsians sitting in their canoes which they had just pushed away from the beach i was told that the cannibal party was in search of a body to devour and if they failed to find a dead body it was probable they would seize the first living one that came in their way so that all the people living near to the cannibal's house had taken to their canoes to escape being torn to pieces the cannibal when about to go through the rites of initiation is generally supplied with one or more human bodies which he tears to pieces with his teeth before his audience several persons either from bravado or as a charm present their arms for him to bite i have seen several who have been thus bitten it has been claimed that the cannibals at these rites actually devour human bodies and the dog-eaters the flesh of dogs mr duncan himself once believed that they did so but i am happy to be able to say that a thorough investigation and a most searching cross-examination of several tsimsians who have themselves in their youth belonged to the dog-eating club 
there are no formal members of the cannibal club at metlakahtla now living has convinced me that these indians are entitled to be acquitted of this heinous charge they never of this i feel certain did eat either human flesh or dog meat it is perhaps bad enough that they even pretended to do so with their teeth they tore the flesh from the bones acted as if they chewed it and pretended to swallow it but they invariably got rid of it after having kept it in the mouth for a while this was well known to the crowd that surrounded the novice and who with their bodies hid him from view when he spewed out and got rid of the flesh in his mouth so that the uninitiated among the people did not see that and therefore honestly believed that he actually ate human flesh or raw dog meat as the case might be on other occasions they had deer meat which they by some trick or sleight of hand performance substituted for the human flesh just before the critical moment the object of the rights of both of these clubs was of course to fill the people with terror at their pretended ferocity all this club work as well as the medicine work mentioned in the next chapter was called by the indians haliad the greater portion of the membership of these clubs was made up of men and boys approaching maturity but there were also a few female members in each club end of chapter eleven